The scripture for today's sermon comes from Jude 3 and 4 and 12 to 19. The word of God speaks to us like this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These are hidden reefs in your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. This is the word of God to us. All right, you can have a seat. Welcome to Frontline. Good to see you this morning. My name is Jeff Nine. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I would love to meet you. And can we just start by going, what a doozy of a text that is, huh? That was like, man, we were just celebrating, baptism, awesome, and then we read that? Um, here's, here's the thing. I, it is heavy in one sense, but here's, here's one of the things that we commit to as a church. The reason that we preach through books of the Bible is that it's really easy to sometimes want to skirt past verses that make us kind of squirm in our chairs or like, I don't know if that's going to get a lot of people to come to my church. And so it's really easy to bypass these. But actually, if these are God's words for us, then it's actually good news. It's actually good news. And the book of Jude, though it hits hard, it hits hard out of love, inviting us to actually recognize the grace of our God even more. And so that's what I hope we are about to do is to look at these verses, but also to be reminded of the, just the goodness of God for us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. It, it means a lot to us that you'd be here. And, and Chad said this a while ago, like, there's no question off limits. There's no skepticism that's going to get you pushed out the door. We'd love to engage. So I'm sure that this text and maybe even things today raise questions, and we would love to process that with you. We're not going to try to twist your arm. We're not going to try to strong arm, but we would love to get to know you, and we're really glad you're here. Hey, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray for me that we step into this text, because here's the thing. We don't need just a lot of cute advice. We actually need to hear from God this morning. So let's ask that he'd speak to us. So God, would you speak to us today? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you form us by your word? Would you help us understand why Jude writes these words to us? And would we come away more in love with you and more in treasuring more deeply your gospel than we were when we walked in the door? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I uh, love kind of big epic fantasy stories. 
Uh, but the thing that you always notice about all these fantasy uh, stories or novels or movies or whatever is that there's always this wise sage. And the sage is usually well advanced in years and usually says weird things in weird ways. And, and they're often bringing kind of ominous warnings and encouragements and challenges. Um, but there's always a sense in which they, they provide wisdom for the, the, the whoever it is that's about to engage in this uh, epic uh, Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, right? Dumbledore in Harry Potter, though, side note, it feels like all of his advice is actually bad advice, so I don't know if he's a sage or not, but we think of him that way because he's got the beard. Uh, or as I missed in the nine and somebody chastised me, I miss saying Yoda. How do you miss Yoda from Star Wars? But I think my favorite is actually from one of the best Disney animated films of all time, Princess in the Frog, Mama Odie. I would sing like she sings, but I ain't going to sing because I, I don't want to hurt your ears. But I love these sages because they, they come alongside whoever the, this party is or these heroes or wannabe heroes and tries to offer counsel for the road ahead, even if it's a road they're not necessarily going down. There's a sense in which that's what Jude is doing. Jude is writing to the church, writing to the early church, uh, and bringing words of wisdom like a fatherly sage would bring. And in this text, I think what we see is we see Jude give us a warning, a reminder, and an appeal. A warning, a reminder, and an appeal. And I think that what we'll see in this text is actually that what he's doing is he's not focusing on all the... the, the he's, he's giving us a warning, but the reason is to bring us back to the beauty and the goodness of what the gospel is. And so let's dive in and let's start looking at those first couple verses that uh, Laura read this morning Verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, quite simply, what Jude is warning us against and warning the church against is apostasy. Apostasy. This word simply means uh, a deviation from the faith, a leaving of the faith, a, a, a recognizing uh, what God offers in his gospel and going a different way. He's warning about apostasy. Chad taught two weeks ago as he introduced Jude to us that, that this idea of walking away from the faith uh, actually touches on three different aspects of the faith. There is belief, right belief, which was the, the, the doctrinal substance of the faith. There's also obedience, the moral substance of the faith. And there's also love, the relational substance of the faith. You see, these people, whoever these people are that Jude is warning us about, are walking away from the faith. And listen to me very carefully. This is why Jude writes, and people are going with them. People are going with them. We're not talking about people that are simply struggling with doubt. We all have doubts. We all struggle with doubts and questions and things. He's not talking about people that simply wrestle with sin, that, are, that on a day-to-day -day fight feel the urge of their flesh dry, draw them away from following Jesus. We all feel that, and we all trip in, in, into sin as well. And he's not simply talking about us failing to love a brother or sister well, but actually a, a self-driven, a self self-motivated step away from the faith. Jude uses very active verbs for this to describe the way that they walk away from right belief. They deny the very gospel itself. 
verse 8 in Jude, he talks about them relying on their dreams. In other words, he's not, they're not relying on the scripture. They're not relying on what God has spoken. They're relying on their own dreams, their own thoughts, whatever they, whatever they can conjure up inside of themselves. They wander away from obedience. They deny holiness. They deny the authority of Jesus. Verse 4 says that they pervert grace into sensuality and deny Jesus. Verse 8 says that they defile the flesh and reject authority. Verse 16 says that they follow their own sinful desires. Do you see the pattern here? That what marks them is a deviation from obedience, the moral aspect of the faith. And also they deviate from the relational aspect of faith, love. They deny the very way of Jesus and the heart of Jesus. Verse 12 tells us that they're shepherds, that instead of feeding the flock, are feeding themselves. And verse 16 describes them as loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism in order to what? To serve? No, to gain an advantage. They're not loving others, they're loving themselves. They're out to gain for themselves. But who are these people? Like, I, I think what we would love to have is a list, and Jude would give us some names and some addresses and maybe some Facebook profiles to look out for. And maybe he'd just give us kind of an, an ongoing update. We're like, oh, watch out for that person. Oh, watch out for that person. Who are these people? Well, we don't know exactly because that's not what he does. But what he does, what, what, what is implied here is that these are people of influence. Now, whether they had actual functional positions of authority or not is not determined. My guess is some of them did and some of them didn't. But what's important is that what Jude is talking about is these are people of influence, and listen to me, people are following them. People are following them. Now, I don't know if all the people following them were even aware of what was happening necessarily in the moment. They might have been, un they might have been aware, they might have been unaware. But regardless, what's happening is Judah's warning. They're not, just, they're, not just, they're not just preaching a slightly different gospel. They're literally walking away from the faith. And so while Jude doesn't identify them with a list of names, he does give us a set of metaphors, the set of metaphors to explain and, and help us get a grap, grasp around who he's talking about. Look at verses 12 and 13. These people, he says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I think there's two things we learn about Jude here. The first is he knows how to punch hard, doesn't he? Wow. He's pulling no punches, pulling no punches. The second is I think he was asleep in writing class when the teacher was te teaching you never mix your metaphors. He's just like, I don't know. Let's throw a bunch of them out there. So Jude was asleep in class. He knows how to punch hard, but let's look at why he says what he does, and let's see what we can learn from this. The first thing he says about them is that they are hidden reefs in your love feasts. Now, hidden reef stands out. Many of you are probably not sailors, but if you are, uh, you probably have sonar. Well, back then, they didn't have sonar. They didn't know what was below the water. These ships would go through the sea, and if they weren't aware of where the reefs were underneath the water, they would hit them, and the ship would capsize. His point is that these people are actually literally destroying the faith of some, and they're unseen, unaware. But listen to me. It doesn't mean because they're hiding around the corner. He says they're in your love feast. 
And love feast sounds kind of weird. That sounds like something that maybe come out of the, out of the 60s, hippies movement. That's not what he's talking about. You see, what was fascinating about the early church was that they were marked so much by their love for one another that the world around them thought they were a little weird. They would gather often together to feast together and to love one another in these things that Jude here calls love feasts. They were often centered actually around the Lord's Supper that we're going to take later. In other words, these were times to not just hang out. They were times to come together underneath the love of God for them and show love towards one another. He's, Judah's saying that these reefs that are capsizing ships are right there in the middle of the feast. Now, he uses this language, shepherds feeding themselves, which, which probably means to some point that some of them were actually serving the Lord's Supper in these love feasts. But what they were really doing was feeding themselves. It's really concerning. The second image he gives is that of waterless clouds. My, my dad's a farmer rancher, um, and, and there were times when uh, you're, you're, you've got your harvest or you've got your wheat crop in the in the in the dirt, and you just are desperate for rain. And you would look out on the horizon, and you'd see these clouds coming, in, and you're just like, "I just hope there's rain in those clouds." That's kind of what he's pointing to here: is that often our souls get parched, and we're longing for rain, and they look promising. These clouds come in, but what he says is that they're waterless clouds. They look like they're going to give me the water I need, and they don't. It's also interesting, he mentions that they're driven by the winds, driven by the winds around them. There's a clear, clear sense in which what Jude is saying is that they're not actually being driven by the Spirit of God, they're being driven by the winds of culture, the things going on around them. They stick their fingers in the, in the air to figure out which way the wind's blowing, and then they follow along. They're waterless clouds. They're fruitless trees. In autumn, when, they're, when the branches should be full of fruit, they're empty. He's, he calls them twice dead. There's a sense in which that's dead both on the branch and dead in the root. There's no fruit and there's no life. He calls them wild waves of the sea. Um, I'm a mountain guy. I don't really necessarily love the beach. I think I just hate sun and happiness. Um, th- but my wife loves the beach, and so we go to the beach. Now, we go to the mountains too. But we go to the beach, and we were on the beach just this last uh, fall in in Florida, and it was it was beautiful. It was it was gorgeous. The sun was setting down over the water, and the waves are coming in, and they look so pretty. And then you're walking out on the beach, and then you step on that thing that wasn't sand. You're like, ooh, that was gross, and you stepped on a dead fish. You know, the waves they look pretty and they look impressive when they come in really big, but what they often do is they churn up the death from within the sea. And that's what the image is here, that they're actually churning up the death that's underneath the water. Lastly, he says that they're wandering stars. Now, with our modern um, uh, astronomy and and our awareness of what's actually happening in the sky, we know that these wandering stars were actually not stars that are moving, but they're planets that look like stars. But in the the early uh, early times, they didn't know. They just, these these things are moving. We don't know what they are. We we know they're not stars because they don't stand in the same place of the, the sky all the time. They're moving. But what he says is this, these wandering stars, if you navigate by them, you're going to be led astray. You're going to get lost. By a people that would be navigating by the stars, you can't navigate by these wandering stars, these planets, or you will get lost. 
After these metaphors, Jude continues, and I think uh, the reason I want to read these is that he's summarizing in some sense what these, what these metaphors are pointing to. Verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful lusts. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain an advantage. In summary, he's pointing out that all of these things point, pull together to show us that these people, whoever they are, are ungodly at their core. They're not like Jesus. Now, he uses this by quoting a very strange book, the book of Enoch. And if you've read it, uh, man, you, you know how weird it is. Uh, he's not quoting scripture here. The book of Enoch is not scripture. This would be much like a, 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 uh, a, a religious teacher quoting uh, Dante, quoting a religious uh, text that is known by many of the day, but that's not authoritative, but it's pointing to what scripture talks about. And he's saying that these people don't look like Jesus and they're not led by the Spirit. They don't love others, they love themselves. They describe a people who are hidden empty, corrupt, and dead. You see, the problem is in all this, these people, whoever they are, because there are people following them, clearly look impressive. Think about the clouds. The clouds, they look impressive. The waves, they come in, they look impressive. They, they, they look like somebody you should follow. But they're trouble. They're trouble. This is why Jude warns us. But after his warning, he gives us a reminder. And I think this reminder will anchor us and will help us as we process what to do with this warning from Jude. Look at verse 17 through 19. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. I think there's two aspects here to Jude's reminder to us. The first is don't be surprised, and the second is be alert. He's telling us here, don't be surprised. He says, you must remember beloved. He's speaking to people that he loves. See, this letter's not written because he, was at, he just woke up on the wrong side of the day, bed that day, and he was just kind of hangry. He's like, I think I'm going to write a letter that's mean. That's not what happened. He loves these people. As a good sage, as a good, wise, fatherly sage, he's warning them because he loves them. But he's saying, don't be surprised. The prophets have already prophesied about this. It's going to happen. He continues on. In the last time, there will be these people, these scoffers. There will be people who use the gospel for personal gain. There will be people that use the truth of the faith in order to lord over other people and lead them astray, to gain their own advantage, to flout, to, to flout them or flout themselves, to, to push themselves out into the front. This will happen. He says, don't be surprised. Can we stop for just a moment? Because it seems like this has happened a lot recently. I, I don't know how 
I don't know how much of this is real, that, that, it's, that there have actually been more leaders who have been exposed in the last couple of years, or it's just because of Twitter and Facebook we know about it. I, I don't know which it is. I've been gutted, and I've been devastated to watch some men and women that I loved and trusted and followed whose lives have been exposed and shipwrecked. And it was enough in a few of those moments for me to go, how did I listen to them for so long? How close was I to being duped? These are the questions that would stir inside of me because I've seen these people, some people, be exposed. But what Jude says is, don't be surprised. It'll happen. So I don't know what your experience is. I don't know what maybe a, a church you grew up in or you have experience with that hurt you. It may have been that you got hurt because of sin and, and failure there. It might have been because there were people like this leading or engaged in that community. It might be that somebody that you looked up to, that you learned from, you read their books, you followed their podcasts, and they got exposed. I want to say, don't be surprised. Jude told us it was coming. That doesn't destroy the beauty of the gospel. That doesn't deny the gospel. So he tells us to don't be surprised, but he also tells us to be alert. You see, he uses the language of these people have crept in unnoticed. He talks to them as hidden reefs. There's this sense in which they're camouflaged. They're right here among us, and we can't necessarily see who they are. We, it's hard to notice who they are. Their deviations from the gospel don't often start with, I hate Jesus. They start with subtle deviations, subtle additions, subtle reinterpretations. Subtle, surely the Scripture didn't mean that. It's subtle. At least it often starts subtle. And so this word to us, to be alert, I think is to, causes us to do two things. We need to both look out and look in. We need to look out and look in. See, we're not on a witch hunt. We're not out here trying to figure, are you, are you, are you, which one, which one of you? That's not the point. But the point is to be aware, to watch, to, to listen for when somebody is teaching something that actually con conflicts with the gospel itself. To be aware that there are some who are in positions of authority or positions of influence trying to gain for self, not serve. But I think we're supposed to not just look out, we're supposed to look in. Why? Because the roots of apostasy reside in every single one of us. The sin inside of us, that, that, that desire to, to mask over sin, to, 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 to excuse it away. That, that tendency in us to want to reinterpret the Scripture so it's a little more convenient for my life. The ways in which I want to, to believe something that's easier to believe. You see, look, at, there is a fundamental difference between apostasy and doubt. We talked about that earlier, but I want to stress it. You may be in the room and you may be doubting. You may be struggling with certain doctrines or certain understanding. That's okay. I've got questions. I'm continuing to lean into to, to doubts and thoughts that I have, but we all struggle with doubt. We all struggle with failure. None of us are perfect. We all struggle with sin, but here's the thing. Apostasy is when those things take root and lead us away from the gospel itself. 
when these things actually lead us away from the faith. And so we need to be aware that it's not just people out there that struggle with this or that, are, that, that could be led astray from the gospel. So could we. So as we step into this third part from Jude, I want us to come back to this idea that these people are hidden or unnoticed. Because I, th- I think what, what, we, what, what I felt when I read this text is uh, this question emerge. How is that possible? How is it possible that I could be, uh, be, be following this teacher or be in this church community with this person or be engaged in life in this way and miss it? How could I miss it? Why is it that these people, whoever they are, are not obvious? And I don't know the answer to this in, in, in totality, but I think that at least part of the reason is often the very thing that leads them away from the gospel is the thing inside of us that often wants to do the same thing. That often I excuse it because I actually want to believe it myself. That there's a sense in which I'm drawn to the same thing that is drawing them away from the gospel. We want, to be, we want a gospel that's easy, convenient, and gives me an advantage. We want a gospel that says easy things to us, not hard things. We want a gospel that's convenient. Our own hearts are often searching for easy answers, convenient gospels, and a justification to save ourselves. And that's exactly what these people are peddling. This is why Jude writes this letter, because we are susceptible. He warns us because we are susceptible. What draws them draws us. But it's because of this that Jude doesn't stop there. He gives us one appeal that frames the entire book. One appeal that frames the entire book. He tells us to contend for the faith. Look at verse 3 again. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, our response, our response to these people, whoever these people are, our response is not an inquisition. It's not my job to figure out who they are and blog about them. It's not my job to figure out who they are and tweet about them. It's not my job to, to try to find, uh, find these people and root them out of our church. This isn't McCarthy's Red Scare. This isn't Salem Witch Trials. Jesus didn't say, this is up to you to figure out how to find them. What Bryce reminded us last week is that it's, it's God's judgment, not ours. God will judge. That's not our job. It's not our job to bring judgment. That's his. Rather, what he calls us to do is to contend for the faith. It's a positive vision, not a negative one. In other words, fundamentally, my posture is not to try to root out what's bad, but actually to remind myself of what's good and to press into the good and to realize that in so doing, it will root out the deviations. Now, what we are to do is to live out as the people of God, the reality of the faith once for all given from the saints to us, once for all entrusted, that we are to pursue right belief, 
We're to pursue truth. We're to be people of truth. Not just truth in our head, but truth that affects our heart and affections. We're to pursue obedience. To pursue, to be a people that actually pursue holiness, even when it's hard. Even when it calls us to do things with our life we don't want to do. That actually that we ought to be a people that are contending for the faith by pursuing obedience and pursuing holiness together. Which means sometimes we have to say to a brother or sister, hey, I think you're heading in a wrong direction. And to be willing to hear that from a brother or sister ourselves. To contend for the faith is to contend to be a people of love. To actually move towards one another in love. To, to be devoted to God and devoted to others. So, how do we do this? I'm going to leave the heavy, heavy lifting here to Derek next week when he gets to tackle the rest of Jude. But I think there's at least three things that we need to pursue as a church if we're to contend for the faith. Three things that if we are to do this, this is how we do it. And contending for the faith encompasses three things, doctrine, discernment, and devotion. Doctrine, discernment, and devotion. And, and, and I would contend you cannot just grab one or two of those. We need to grab all three of them if we're to do this. Together, these three things form like a, a, a spiritual immune system. You know, I'm, I'm not a doctor. Maybe I look like a doctor. Probably don't. I'm not, I, but I'm not a doctor. I don't have a lot of medical advice. Don't come to me when your ear hurts and have me tell you what to do. I, I don't. But I know enough. I know enough, I think, to speak to the immune system, which is this part of our body that recognizes when an invader comes in. And, and it's not so much that it knows every possible bacteria, all possible infections, and all the medical people can correct me afterwards. That It doesn't know all of those things, but it recognizes when something is off. And it brings a response in the body that the health that rises pushes out the unhealth that comes in. That there's this sense in which what we're to do is we are to root out the unhealth, but not by trying to chase it down, but actually by being pursuing health ourselves. We do this by pursuing right doctrine. Now, doctrine may be a word for you that you're like, I don't know, that sounds like something for theology nerds. Well, I am a theology nerd. I'll, I'll confess that. But, but, I, but I'm not talking to hear doctrine about, like, go pick up your next theology book and read it. I'm, I'm saying this. Doctrine are those things that God has declared about who he is, who we are, and the way of salvation that he has declared once for all for all of us. It is truth that we don't get to, to, to change, to edit, but it's truth we receive. And we as people of truth need to pursue a right understanding of what he has declared is true. We need to be a people that are pursuing doctrine. Not just information for our head, but true doctrine ought to, ought to aliven our hearts to the things that are good. It should give me an appetite for the things that are good. Doctrine will guide us through the choppy waters of culture when culture says, that's not true, this is true instead. And we instead affirm the faith once for all, handed down from the apostles. We need to be a people of doctrine. But we also need to be a people of discernment. Discernment. Discernment is one of those characteristics that emerges out of maturity. 
We often, I think, think of discernment as trying to discern the bad, to find the fake, to, to, to root it out. And, and while there's a little bit of component to that, discernment is really more about loving the good, recognizing the good, building an appetite for the good, recognizing what's right. That discernment, a discerning palate, is not one that's tasted all the bad foods, but they know where the good food is found. Discernment is recognizing and cherishing and feasting upon What's good? Hannah Anderson in her brilliant book, All That's Good, says it this way. You may not initially connect the idea of discernment with goodness. For some of us, discernment carries a defensive connotation. We see it as a protection mechanism, a shield against the threats of a dangerous world. But in a broader sense, discernment simply means developing a taste for what's good. It's developing an instinct for quality, a refined sensibility, an eye for value, to know the difference between what's good and what's not in order, listen to this, in order to partake of the good. Discernment gives you the ability to both appreciate the subtle beauty of a Renault and a spot of fake. You see, this discernment is learning to love the good, to love the gospel so much that when I hear something that deviates from the gospel, something goes off and I go, I don't know what that is, but that didn't sound right. And it drives us back to Scripture to hear from Scripture what's right. The discernment is so recognizing the beauty of what God has given us in His Son to recognize when false saviors are being put forward. Discernment is loving the good. Third, we need to be people of devotion. To be people of devotion. I I think maybe a word that we could use here instead would be that of communion. To, to devotion with God, communion with God, devotion to one another or communion with one another, that we are so for God and for others and towards them that there's this deep communion of relationship that leads to a devoted life. We are devoted to Christ. In contrast to these leaders that Jude warns us about, they are divisive. Instead, devotion to Christ should draw us to work for unity where it says that that they are are people of ungodliness. We ought to be a people who, out of devotion to Christ, strive for godliness. That there it says that these these, uh, people are, uh, are, are devoid of the Spirit. We are to be a people in devotion to Christ that are filled with His Spirit. This is what it means for us to pursue a life that contends for the faith. It's a sense, a coming back to the gospel again and again and again. It's some, in some ways, it's simply this reminder to, to contend for the faith, is to come back and, and to come back and eat of the gospel again, to, to remind myself of the truth that it gives, to remind myself of the goodness that it presents. Jude's word to us is to return over and over and over again to the beauty of the gospel. It is to remind us that we are to be a people who return over and over and over again to this one, this once, for, once delivered faith. You see, Jude used these metaphors earlier to describe the unhealth in the church. But we this morning get to see two metaphors 
that actually do this very thing, that remind us of this faith that we've been given, that remind us of the goodness of God in the baptism and the Lord's Supper. You see, the people that Jude was warning us about are essentially their message can be reduced down to two things. They might not say them overtly, but this is essentially behind what they say, is that you need to save yourself and feed yourself. Save yourself, rescue yourself, and feed yourself. You are your own source of wisdom. You are your own source of grace. Save yourself and feed yourself. But these two images give us the opposite. Baptism. In baptism, we are reminded again that Jesus is the one that saves us. We don't save ourselves. That the goodness of the gospel itself is that I don't save myself. I don't rescue myself out of my own pain, my own brokenness, my own sin. I don't rescue myself from other people. Only Jesus does. That by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, he takes my sin from me and gives me his life in return. Free grace. I didn't earn it. I didn't save myself. That's beauty. Jesus saves. And in the same way, the Lord's Supper tells us that we don't feed ourselves, Jesus feeds us. This meal is a meal of grace, a meal in which we gather together as the, as the people of God to be reminded of the gospel, to receive again his good news, which is grace to us. That's what we need. These practices of the faith, the reason that we do these all the time as a people is that we have to remember the gospel or else we will stray. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you are wrestling with having been hurt or been led astray by leaders before. I don't know if you've just been disappointed and discouraged when you've seen this happen. I don't know if you've been wrestling with deep doubts that have turned into a rejection of the gospel or, or you're just wrestling with doubts and questions you don't know what to do with. Here, here's the thing. I don't know where you are and I don't know how long that's been going on, but I do know this, that what Jude says is come back again to the faith. Return. Whether, whether it whether, it, whether it's something where you didn't come in this room feeling like you were walking away from the gospel or whether you came in going, I don't know if God's real. The call to all of us is to remember again the beauty of the gospel. To come again to Jesus, the one who saves us and the one who feeds us. Let's pray.